You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We are going to spend the next hour talking about how to pick the best diagnostic tests for a wide range of different things we see day to day in our practices. So it is not all going to be unusual, weird, rare, complex medical derm stuff. Um, what we're going to talk about is how to know what is the best diagnostic test when we're looking at infections, fungal infections, bacterial and viral. Um, one of the questions I got yesterday um, was, how do I know where to biopsy this blistering disease uh, condition? So we're going to talk about the best biopsy type, site, and lesion to get good information, not just on blistering diseases, but other skin conditions as well. So we'll talk about how to do the best biopsies. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about what labs do I order when I have the patient with chronic Paritis without rash, or erythema nodosum, um, or urticaria, or vasculitis, because these are things that come in, and, and that's always the, the first question is, okay, what, what don't I want to miss? So what is my list of labs that I order for these patients? Um, and then we will spend just a couple minutes talking about, you know, with these biopsies that we order for DIF and, and serum studies that we talked about a little bit earlier today and yesterday, when I get this report back, it is really confusing. So how do I read this report um, so that I, I can make sure that I'm interpreting it correctly? All right, grab your clickers. We'll do a couple of quick, quick Q&A here. Um, we're going to start off talking about diagnostic tests for infectious skin conditions. And we're going to do this as sort of like pre-test, post-test. So take a look at this foot, these nails. True or false, this patient has onychomycosis. Did they do the Macarena last night? I don't think I saw, I don't know. I, I wasn't on the dance floor when that was happening. I would not have danced. I would not have done that one, but my kids are really good at it. Um, okay, so um, we've, got, we've got a good split here. 50% um, yes, this is onychomycosis, 38% not really sure, and about 10% saying no. Let's look at this one and answer the same question. Does this patient have onychomycosis? Okay, again, good bit of disagreement here in our selections. I think this is our last one. How about this patient? Okay, again, not, we, don't, we aren't getting 100% here. We're not all agreeing with what the correct answer choice is. So when you're not sure clinically whether a patient has onychomycosis, what is the best test order? Should you get a KOH? Is this answering already? Um, we're seeing your answers pop up. Uh, a KOH, a fungal culture of the nail plate, a biopsy of the nail plate, a swab culture, or no testing, um, just treat them. If 
I push the button, am I going to mess things up, Brian? Go ahead. Three seconds, you can keep changing. All right, so the choice that got the most hits here was biopsy, was, was a fungal culture of the nail plate, but the correct answer is biopsy of the nail plate. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Diagnostic tests for onychomycosis. You can do a KOH. You can do that biopsy of a nail plate um, for PAS, and you can do a nail plate culture. And there have been a number of different analyses of these various modalities to try and figure out, really, where do you get the most bang for your buck, um, really truly both in terms of cost, but also in terms of sensitivity and specificity. So sensitivity means that it's a good screening test. It's positive in the disease most of the time. So you want a screening test to have a really high sensitivity. Um, as it turns out, of these different options, biopsy has the highest sensitivity. You're most likely to pick up onychomycosis with a biopsy. KOH is next, and culture is actually the lowest of these three, somewhat surprisingly. Um, however, culture is the only test that will allow you to determine what the organism is. So Dr. Kirby mentioned early this morning for those of those early risers that were here that you know you might think somebody has a fungal infection and treat them empirically and they don't get better and it could be because they actually have a mold that terbinafine is not going to cover. It doesn't treat molds um, but rather just treats the true dermatophyte fungi and so the culture is going to be the test to perform at that point because that way you can find out oh that's why this patient isn't responding. They really do have a fungal infection, but it's, it's something that this drug I used was not going to take care of. Um, but of these modalities, the biopsy of the nail plate, the KOH and the culture, the biopsy has the highest sensitivity, so it's the best screening test. Really though, like she said earlier, when you're diagnosing onychomycosis, the most important thing to do first is look at the patient clinically, because most of the time we're able to make this diagnosis without having to do ancillary tests. There are some things, though, of course, that can really mimic uh, onychomycosis, and that's why it can be a little bit confusing. And so when you're not sure, and I think those first few questions showed that there are certainly some times when there's uncertainty clinically, you want to do that nail plate clipping as your first line test. And the way you do that is you just take a nail clipper and clip a piece of the nail plate the more that you're, more of the nail you're able to clip away, the more proximal you're able to get without torturing your patient, the more of that kind of subungled debris, pick a nail that's a little, the thickest kind of gnarliest looking nail. But you just clip a piece of that distal nail plate and you put it in formalin just like you would your tissue for biopsy. So you drop it in the jar and you send it to pathology and you can indicate on your requisition form that this is a nail plate for rule out onychomycosis. Um, in some places, that will prompt the pathology lab to only prepare this tissue with a stain for fungus, a PAS fungal stain, as opposed to doing routine H&E histology. Some, some labs will do both pathology labs either way, but if they know that's what you're looking for, that's really helpful in how they process the nail plate itself. 
Either way, you should get your answer as long as you tell them you're looking for fungus. Um, but if you look at the na patient's nails and you're sure they have a fungus, they've got rip-roaring tinea pedis along with it, there's no other reason you're worried about psoriasis or lichen planus or other mimickers. Like she said this morning, it's actually the best thing to do is treat empirically with terbinafine. It's the most cost-effective way of doing this. No confirmatory testing. Treat them with terbinafine. And if they fail, then you can move on to ancillary tests. At that point, I would probably do a culture because I want to make sure they don't have a mold rather than, than a dermatophyte that was recalcitrant because I used the wrong drug. All right. So this patient has onychomycosis. We looked at this one just a minute. So true, false, I'm not sure. I'll send it for nail plate biopsy. So perfect, those are the right answers, both of them, A or C. So if you're not sure the best thing to do, send the nail plate for biopsy. In fact, this was a patient who has onychomycosis, just so you know what this is a picture of. But if you chose A or you chose C, you got the correct answer. This patient, what are you going to do? Call Ghostbusters. Okay, what does this patient have? I hear psoriasis. I hear pseudomonas. So your choices were B or C, and those two were both correct. This is a pseudomonas nail infection. That green color is the tip-off that this is a, a pseudomonas bacterial nail plate infection. Sometimes you'll see pseudomonas in the context of onychomycosis, because with onychomycosis, you get onycholysis. The plate and beds separate, and it, then you get moisture trapping under the nail, so that's where pseudomonas likes to come in. So you can have both. So B and C are actually both correct answers here. And then this patient we looked at a moment ago, anybody revising their answers? You can add, I'm going to biopsy to choice C. Great. So this one, the toughest one, I think. So if you chose, I'm not sure I'm going to biopsy, you're going to get a correct from me. Um, and this patient, this is nail psoriasis. So let's just take a second and look at a few mimickers of onychomycosis just as, as a, to refresh our memories. So nail psoriasis and, on, and onychomycosis can be clinically indistinguishable. So the trick is look for evidence of psoriasis elsewhere. Um, so in this patient, if you look at the rest of the palm, clearly there is a plaque on the palm. Um, the nail here, you see that oil spot, which is more typical of psoriasis than a fungal nail infection. Oil spots or that orangey color under of the nail there is due to the nail, again, lifting or separating off the nail bed. Um, so these are examples of psoriasis. We talked about pseudomonas infection. Lichen planus can sometimes affect the nail in really a wide array of different manners. And so lichen planus can be in your differential. Again, look around. Do they have 
flat-topped, purple, pyritic papules uh, elsewhere, then, then you're going to be more likely to diagnose lichen planus. So look for clues elsewhere. And then chronic perinichia is another, I think, sometimes mimicker, although the nail plate's usually not so dystrophic. Um, but you get this swelling of the nail fold and the loss of the cuticle in patients who have chronic perinichia, um, an inflammatory condition where you often get secondary candidal infection as well, but it's primarily inflammatory. All right, one more on the nail. What do you think about this patient, onychomycosis or not? Yeah, this, this one, I think, um, this is a, is a psoriasis patient, um, but this one is tough. If you look at this patient, they have no evidence of psoriasis elsewhere, um, but they have rip-roaring onychomycosis of their toenails and maybe tinea on their palm. You'd go the other direction, so you've got to look for those clues. And again, bottom line, if you're not sure, if you don't have good clues to guide you, do a biopsy of the nail plate for PAS. All right, we'll talk about a different type of condition here. Um, which of the following is the correct diagnosis here? Is this confluent and reticulated papillomatosis, CARP, tinea versicolor, mycosis fungoides? Is it vitiligo or not really sure? The correct answer here, this is tinea versicolor. If you're a good test taker, you know we're talking about how to test for infections, so that increases your odds if you pick the infectious uh, answer here on the table. But this is tinea versicolor, but sometimes I think tinea versicolor can be a difficult diagnosis to make as well. Um, so this is the patient's chest in addition to the arm. So you have these hypopigmented um, patches, not a lot of scale. With, with tinea versicolor, if you do scrape it, though, oftentimes that's when you start to see that scale show up as you start to scrape with your 15 blade. Um, so tinea versicolor um, has a lot of things that can look a lot like it. And those were some of our answer choices. So vitiligo, sometimes you get that same distribution. Vitiligo, really you want to see stark depigmentation. You might use a woods light to highlight that um, to see if it's really depigmented as opposed to hypopigmented. But early in the course of vitiligo, it may be appear more hypopigmented and be difficult to tell apart. Pityriasis rosea is often on our differential when we're thinking about tinea versicolor. Again, you get those pink scaly patches and plaques, usually a little more scale in PR than in tinea versicolor, but sometimes you get minimally scaly papules in PR. MF, annular, truncal, scaly patches in the patch stage. And then confluent and reticulated papillomatosis likes to show up in the exact same spot. We typically see tinea versicolor as well. So all of these things, I think, are, are mimickers to keep, to keep in mind. And whenever you see something in this distribution with this morphology, um, with scale, you want to scrape it. And so how many people have heard, you know, if it's scale, scrape it like a million times over and over and over again. And what I tell our, our students um, is that if it 
if it scales, scrape it not once, but if your first scraping is negative, scrape it one more time before you cut into that person and do a biopsy. Um, a lot of times the student will come and present and say, I think I did a scraping, it's negative, and we'll walk back in the room and look and they're, they're the student or the resident or whoever is ready to do the biopsy and we'll just say, let's just check one more time and go and, because sometimes that first KOH, you don't maybe get the right spot or maybe the longer it cooks with the KOH sitting on it, the student looks at it, it's negative, and then I go look at it and it's positive. It's not because my eyes are necessarily any better, it's because it's had a little longer to sit there. So um, think about at least checking twice, especially when your index of suspicion is high before you go cutting into a person for a biopsy that may be unnecessary. With tinea versicolor, you're going to see spores and hyphal forms. So you get those, that spaghetti and meatball pattern where you get these little short hyphae and then the little round spores. Yeast organisms are the, uh, the, can be part of normal flora. We know tinea versicolor is really part of normal flora. Um, but when you see hyphal forms, so these short hyphae, that means it's an infectious process. If you just see spores, you may be looking at normal flora. So you really want to see that combination of both hyphae, short hyphae, pseudohyphae, and spores to know that you're dealing with a, uh, an infection as opposed to normal flora. All right, another case where we might be challenged just clinically to make the right diagnosis. Does this young lady have herpes simplex virus? Does she have impetigo? Does she have a candidal infection, perioral derm, or not, hard to say. Okay, good, good spread here. We'll talk about what she has in a moment. A um, lot of people going with impetigo here, um, but decent numbers going for most of the others as well. So our differential, herpes. We want to see grouped vesicles, um, which I think she's got some grouped vesicles here. So I think that's reasonable to be on the differential. Um, but she's got stuff going on in a pretty widespread fashion. I guess it could be a primary HSV infection, but it's not just limited to one area, which makes you start to question, is this, is this HSV? Impetigo, well, vesicles and crusting, she's got, she's got that, but again, how often do you see grouped vesicles typically in impetigo? Those, usually the vesicles are so fragile that you don't even see the vesicles, you just see that honey-colored crusting. She's got involvement of the oral commissures, so if you're thinking perlesh, a candidal infection, that's not unreasonable. It's a little bit odd, though, that she's got stuff going on around her nose. That doesn't fit so well for, for candidal perlesh. What's wrong for perioral? Usually there's this nice sparing of the vermilion. So you get clear skin right adjacent to the vermilion, and then you get your papules and scaly patches with a little zone of sparing. Um, so the fact that this really abuts the vermilion makes perioral dermatitis, perioral dermatitis less likely. So what are we going to do? If we're looking for HSV, we could do a viral culture. We could do a Zank prep. We could do blood tests for HSV antibodies. 
we could do a swab test to send to the lab called a direct fluorescent antibody test, or we could do a swab test for PCR. So we have a whole bunch of different options. What's, what's the best way to go? If we're worried about impetigo, what are our options? Does anybody do gram stains? I think your lab has to, your office lab even has to be certified specially in, by CLIA in order to allow you to, to do or bill for um, gram stains. I have not done a gram stain in 15 to 20 years, so I don't think people really do those too much anymore, but she could. Um, but I think in general we'll do a culture, a swab culture, to look for a bacterial infection. And how about for candida? You could do KOH, we just talked about doing that, looking, looking to see if there's evidence of candida. You could do a swab as well, a fungal swab. So we've got a whole bunch of tests that we could do, subject this poor young lady to. Um, what, what should we do? Well, if we're looking for HSV, um, we have that whole list of different testing types. And really, the best test that you can order, if it's available to you, which it ha is generally pretty widely available now, is to do a swab for PCR. So you take a viral swab, and all you do is touch it to those areas of vesicles. You can even ideally maybe unroof them a little bit. Um, but the PCR is so sensitive, oftentimes you don't, you don't have to really cut into these blisters to get your, your positive test if the organism is there. Um, so PCR is the most sensitive uh, way uh, and specific test, and it's got a rapid turnaround time. Um, so when we're concerned about this, you get results usually back within 24 hours um, of this test. The DFA, does anybody do those still? Some, some labs do. You have to swab again, and you smear that swab on a microscope slide, send it to a virology lab, um, and they can look for it. And that's the next best test, but um, it it's, has to be done properly. You have to get it quickly to the virology lab. Um, not always really a practical one. Culture, unfortunately, really doesn't have the greatest sensitivity. Um, it, it's very specific if you do culture the virus, but um, it, it isn't very sensitive. You miss it frequently. And it takes a while to get your test result back. And then zinc smear is very user dependent. You have to do a lot of it, I think, to feel good about doing it. Um, and even that said, low sensitivity, low specificity. So PCR would be the ideal test if you have that available to you. How about for the impetigo question? Well, your swab for culture is, is just like the zinc smear is very subjective and takes a lot of experience. The gram stain does too, and nobody really does it anymore, but the bacterial cultures. That said, if you, not this child, but if you're looking at somebody who's got ulcers, plaques, or nodules, a swab culture is not going to be so helpful. You need to send tissue culture. So just to remember, for bacterial infections, if you're thinking about that, but you're looking at an ulcer or a big nodule, um, you actually want to biopsy for tissue culture. And then fungus, we've talked about for superficial fungal infections, doing that KOH. For yeast, we're looking for both spores and hyphae. Um, for dermatophyte infections, those long branching hyphae. Same thing for fungus, if you're seeing, if you're looking at an infection that looks like nodules or ulcers and you think it could be a fungus, you need to do tissue cultures. So that's a Miyake granuloma there on the arm. All, this was somebody that we had treated for dermatitis with steroids and came back with all these 
papules and pustules and tissue culture confirmed fungus. All right, so what are we going to do for this young lady? A PCR for HSV and a swab culture for bacteria, a KOH and a zinc, a fungal culture, or biopsy for tissue cultures. Great, exactly. So you do that, but you are gonna have to wait a little bit to get some results back. So I think it's very reasonable in somebody like this to perhaps start both empiric therapy with antibacterial agents as well as Valtrex, acyclovir, valacyclovir, and that's what we did for her, doing both, because just not sure. Um, the culture showed that she had staph, and the PCR was positive for HSV. She had both. Probably started initially with that HSV infection, but rubbing and scratching and broken skin, she got secondary impetigo as well. So treating her for both empirically ended up being the right thing to do based on your test results as well. Okay, let's talk some about biopsies. How do we choose where to biopsy, um, which lesion, what part of the body for, for different skin conditions? And this is really the question that, that somebody asked yesterday. I'm gonna ask it in a few different ways though. So with this, this eruption here, these blisters, how are you gonna do the biopsy? You're gonna snip a piece of the blister roof and send it are you going to do a shave biopsy, a punch biopsy, an excisional biopsy, or none of the above? Hard to say. Okay, good. So I would say that shave or punch are both correct answer choices here. I think you can do either one of those. Um, a snip of the blister roof is not, not going to give you the information that you want. We'll talk about why. And an excision is probably a little bit overkill here. Okay. Now, same patient. When you do that biopsy, are you going to send it for H&E? Are you going to send it for DIF? Are you going to do both? Are you going to send tissue culture? Great, so blistering diseases, we're gonna do H&E and DIF. We've talked about this for this in the last two days a few times. So when you wanna evaluate for an immunobolus disorder, which would be among your concerns in this patient, send for both. All right, and this is the, the real question that was asked yesterday, and I'll give you a second to look at this before we start the timer. So are you gonna biopsy this patient for DIF next to the blister and H&E next to the blister? Are you gonna send the piece for H&E from this inflamed skin and the DIF from the blister skin? Are you gonna send the H&E from inflamed skin and the DIF from the inflamed skin? Or are you gonna do the DIF from perilesional skin and the H&E from inflamed skin? Great, you got it right. So 
When you're looking for an immunobullous disease, you want to do your DIF from, let's see, I think I can go back, yeah, DIF from perilesional, uninflamed skin within a centimeter of your blister, and your H&E, hard to see, but this is actually a blister, and your H&E is getting a portion of your blister and a portion of the inflamed skin. This is the ideal location in a blistering disease to get the best information out of your biopsy. So in general, when you're looking for immuno at patients with potential immunobullous diseases, you want to do a few things when choosing your site. You really want to ask the patient, which is the newest blister? find the newest lesion possible. Biopsying an, an erosion that's already crusted over, um, where you know there had been a blister, is not going to give you much information. But if you biopsy the newest lesion, you're much more likely to get information. And that's true both for the DIF and the H&E. So the newer the lesion, the better. And you either want to do a punch biopsy, a decent-sized punch biopsy, or a shave scoop biopsy. You don't have to go down into, like, the, the deep, deep dermis and the adipose, but you want to be sure that you're getting underneath the dermis so that your pathologist is able to look at the level of the split. So a little bit of a, of a scoop biopsy or a punch biopsy, making sure you're getting, getting all the way into, I would say, more like the mid-dermis. Um, and for your H&E, again, if you can include both a portion of an intact blister as well as that adjacent inflamed skin, that allows your pathologist to see where is that split occurring. Is it up in the epidermis or is it at the junction of dermis and epidermis? Um, for the DIF, within a centimeter of the lesion, but you want to pick uninflamed skin. So not, not even necessarily the pink skin. The skin can look completely normal, and you're still going to have those immunoreactants if you're that close to a blister. Um, if you pick the blister itself, a lot of times all the inflammation that went into the, the blister formation and the subsequent healing just eradicates the immunoglobulin on the DIF test, so you don't see it. And whenever possible, and this is true not just of blistering diseases, but definitely um, in blistering diseases, when you can biopsy off the lower extremity, do so. Legs heal more slowly, but DIF results, we often get um, false negative and false sometimes positive results, too, from DIF on the lower extremity. So if you can pick the newest lesion on the upper extremity uh, or torso, do that rather than the, the lower legs. Okay, so we've got a biopsy here for DIF and H&E. I'm not sure what this, where this is going. I think that was, I'm not sure about, ignore that slide. <laughs> All right, we'll move on. How about this, this condition? What are we looking at? Vasculitis, yeah, yeah. So this is, this is vasculitis. How do we do this biopsy? Lesional skin for our H&E. How about for our DIF? Lesional. So this is different than a bullous disease. Here we actually want to see where the, we will actually see the immunoglobulin in the lesional skin in vasculitis. So unlike bullous disease, when you're looking at leukocytoclastic vasculitis, you want to do a DIF in these patients largely because you want to know if they have IgA vasculitis. Um, we call that sometimes Hanak-Schönlein purpura, particularly in kids, is that triad of leukocytoclastic vasculitis and arthralgias and GI, but also sometimes kidney involvement. 
In adults who have IgA vasculitis, they have a much higher likelihood of having significant kidney involvement, and they may develop that kidney involvement months or even a few years down the road. So knowing that a patient has IgA on the DIF of a leukocytoclastic vasculitis uh, rash helps you know how to monitor that adult. An adult with IgA will need ongoing renal monitoring um, even after the first weeks or months of this eruption to be sure that they don't develop subsequent kidney disease, IgA nephropathy. Just like in immunobullous diseases, you want to choose the newest and most proximal lesion for biopsy. With the blisters, it's a little easier, I think, to pick a new lesion because the blister's intact. It's probably new. Um, but for, for vasculitis, it may be a little harder. And this is where you just ask the patient, Do you, can you tell me where, which one wasn't here yesterday? I mean, if you, by new, I mean trying to get within the first 24 hours. Um, so asking your patient, really picking that newest lesion. Otherwise, just like with the, in the blisters, the inflammation that's occurring in the skin may eradicate the immunoglobulin that you're trying to look for with your DIF biopsy. Um, and, and really, this is a time when you want to pick deeper biopsy techniques, not just the shave. Uh, because when, with vasculitis, we talked about how vasculitis is classified by how, what type of vessel, what caliber of vessel, what size of vessel. And so you need to get deep into the skin to get to those medium-sized vessels. If you just do a shave and you're getting the, the upper or mid-dermis, you're only going to see small vessel vasculitis. If it's there, you're going to miss deeper. So um, punch or excisional biopsies for vasculitis. Um, this paper is, I think, really, really helpful. It was in the JAD. It was a CME article within the last couple of years. Um, I apologize, I don't have the year on there, but it's volume 74. It's in your handout. Um, but this was a, a, a CME article on how to choose the best sites and biopsy types. They have great tables. It's a really good reference. So when you're looking at something and you're not sure which, where should I do the biopsy for which disease, and they go through autoimmune diseases, vasculitis, paniculitis, rheumatologic disease, Stevens-Johnson, staph scalded skin, alopecia biopsies. Um, so I just think this is a really helpful reference for you to be aware of that you can go back and look at when you're kind of wondering, am I doing the best biopsy? Okay. So we're back to this patient. We've done our biopsies. We get a DIF result that shows IgG and C3 in a linear pattern at the basement membrane zone. So. What is this telling us? Is this pemphigus? Is this pemphigoid? I'm really not sure. Okay, so what this tells us, the correct answer is pemphigoid. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit here about what these tests are really helping us with. So what is direct immunofluorescence microscopy? We talked about this in the last hour, if, uh, if you were here for, for that talk with, uh, about the medical literature. But it's a test to look at your patient's biopsy to see if they have autoantibodies in their skin. 
when you get a report, it's going to tell you about those autoantibodies, and it's going to tell you whether they're seeing the IgG type of antibody, IgM, IgA, and it's also going to tell you if you're, they're seeing complement um, in the skin. And then it's going to tell you about where they are seeing that immunoglobulin. If they're seeing that immunoglobulin in the epidermis, it means you're dealing with a disease that causes intraepidermal blisters like pemphigus, so either pemphigus vulgaris or pemphigus foliaceus in most cases. That's what you're looking for and what that epidermal pattern means. If you get a report that they have any of these types of immunoglobulin at the basement membrane zone, it means you're dealing with a subepidermal blister, and clinically you're probably seeing tense, intact bulla, um, whereas in the intraepidermal blistering diseases, you're going to see erosions because those blisters are superficial and more fragile. Um, but if you get this staining at the basement membrane zone or deeper, you're more likely to be dealing with pemphigoid or epidermolysis bullosa acquisita or linear IgA bullous dermatosis. So this is the information you're looking for and what you're going to get reported back to you on those, those reports. Um, they will also tell you if there is staining that's mainly vascular. So that's why we do the DIF test when we're looking at a patient with vasculitis. Um, and they'll tell you, again, which type of immunoglobulin. So they'll tell you if it's that IgA, prominent vascular staining, indicative of IgA vasculitis. When your report comes into you, this is, this is what it's going to look like. So they're going to list those immunoglobulin subtypes, and then they're going to tell you that pattern. So that patient's biopsy showed two to three plus, that's sort of the intensity of that green color staining that they see on the, under the microscope. So two to three plus is more than one plus, that's less, so just kind of makes sense. The higher the number, the more intense the staining, linear basement membrane zone. Some labs will even subtype different subsets of immunoglobulin G. Um, this patient had no IgM and no IgA staining and had C3. And this means that, that patient had pemphigoid. It's a basement membrane zone blister, and it's characterized by usually IgG and or C3 at the basement membrane zone. In contrast is the serum testing, and we talked a little bit about this in the last hour if you were here also. So you can do blood testing for these diseases. And there are times when I've had a patient who I'm really suspicious that they may have a bullous disease, but they don't have a, any intact blisters right now or good ones that are new enough that I, they're untreated that I can get information from. And occasionally, in those instances, I'll just get the blood test. Your DIF is still your gold standard. And we talked about earlier how really what you want to do is your biopsy, your DIF, and a blood test. And these blood tests include um, indirect immunofluorescence and ELISA tests. Um, in these tests, what you're looking at is your patient's serum to see if they have circulating autoantibodies. Uh, and they do this with the indirect immunofluorescence test by exposing donor normal skin to your patient's serum and looking for the presence of your patient's antibodies, if they have them, in that, in that donor normal skin. 
in contrast, the ELISA test looks specifically for certain autoantibodies. And so you can't look for every autoantibody known to every bullous disease, but there are ELISA tests available for the desmoglians and BP antigen 1 and 2. Um, as it turns out, the ELISA tests um, are not necessarily, or, or the, these tests have varying sensitivities and specificities, so you sometimes will get a positive result of one and a negative result of, of another, um, but these are kind of the different types of blood tests that can be ordered for bullous diseases. And so you'll get reports that look like these back. This is the indirect immunofluorescence where you've taken your patient's serum and exposed donor normal skin to your patient's presumably abnormal serum, um, and you get a report back saying, yeah, we're seeing IgG in a titer. They'll give you an amount. This is a high titer, um, 1 to 1280, and we're seeing it on this donor skin. In this case, the donor skin was monkey esophagus. There are certain types of tissue that are better for reacting against patient sera. So it's not always against human, human skin, but um, monkey esophagus and in this lab, they do both that as well as human salt split skin. Um, so they found the, these antibodies here, um, IgG and IgA, and they find IgG anti-nuclear antibodies as well. So you'll get a whole, you may get a whole list of different findings here, but they're telling you about which, again, which type of immunoglobulin um, and how much is present and where, so basement membrane zone. In contrast, the ELISA report isn't going to localize it because you're not using skin as a detection for where these antibodies are showing up. You're just saying, yes, th these antibodies are in the patient's circulation, and yeah, there are a lot of them, or there aren't very many. So this is a patient who has BP-180 antibodies that are elevated. There are 59. You get a reference range, so anything more than 9 is positive. Um, but they don't have BP-230 antibodies, because they have to have greater than 9 to be positive. This can be a helpful test because in diseases like pemphigus and pemphigoid, those antibodies are pathogenic, and we can follow these numbers, these titers, over time to know whether our treatments are working. So if you treat somebody, their numbers may go from 59 down to undetectable or down to the normal range, and that usually correlates with their skin improving. So that's kind of a no-duh. But over time, if their skin is clear, a lot of times we start to reduce immunosuppression, knowing that they could flare again. So about every six months, I'll repeat these tests to look and see if those titers start to climb back up. And a lot of times you'll see that titer increase before they'll feel itchy or before they'll see blisters on their skin, but you know they're about to flare. So you can start preemptively treating them to prevent them from having a flare. And that's what this is showing here. This is a patient with pemphigus, and you look at March 31st, 2015, compared to May 5th, 2016. This was a patient who was doing pretty, pretty well with desmoglein 1 antibodies at this time, but then had, in 2016, they were climbing up. Interestingly, 
their desmoglein 3 were really high then and were a little bit lower here. So sometimes antibody profiles change over time, but you can use these tests to monitor patients' response to treatment and know when to retreat them. All right, we'll stop with the bullous disease stuff here. We're going to move on and talk about some lab screening because this comes up every day. Which lab tests do I screen for with various kind of nonspecific skin findings? So this is a 70-year-old who comes in. He's got a six-month history of hives and pruritus, and it hasn't gotten better with antihistamines. He tells you that his individual lesions last for more than 24 hours. What is our best step? Do we check a serum IgE level, and then we put him on Zolaire, omalizumab? Are we going to perform a KOH? Are we going to order a serum protein electrophoresis to look for a hematologic malignancy? Are we going to do biopsies for H&E and DIF? No, Are we going to phone a friend? Great. So this is somebody who has atypical hives. They're lasting more than 24 hours. You want to make sure that this isn't one of those pre-bullous, bullous pemphigoid patients. Um, so as I segue from bullous into non-bullous, let's talk about some conditions for which we want to kind of routinely think about doing a lab workout to rule out systemic disease. Chronic urticaria is one. And that's true of chronic urticaria that's typical urticaria, that's la that where the individual lesions are lasting for fewer than 24 hours, or for those that are atypical, like the patient just described. Paritis, with no, with, paritis without, it should say, rash, so just generalized paritis. Those patients who are itchy and we don't have any good explanation for why, we want to think about ordering some screening labs. Erythema nodosum is another skin condition that comes through our door doors that in and of itself is, is not so much a disease but rather a reaction pattern to something else that triggered it elsewhere. Purpura, ecchymosis, and ulcers, photosensitivity, and rash with systemic symptoms, and that's what we talked about yesterday. So I'm not going to talk a lot about those. You can go back and look at the handout from yesterday's talk about um, rheumatologic diseases and what to order and when to refer. So we'll talk about these first three. So urticaria, what should our diagnostic evaluation be? And the first thing is, are they true hives or are they something else? And that is what that diagnostic algorithm published in the allergy journals uh, kind of helped us to, to think about, really, are they lasting more than 24 hours? Are they associated with systemic symptoms? Is it something that somebody's got a family history of and they began in childhood and they're associated with arthritis? So these would all be atypical hives, maybe a mimicker of chronic urticaria. So that's the first step. If you have an individual patient who says, yeah, these last longer than 24 hours, you know what to do. You biopsy and DIF to look for an immunobullous disease. You're looking to see if they have urticarial vasculitis on a biopsy. And you're starting to think about those rare inherited auto-inflammatory syndromes uh, that you can, you can order other tests for. The next step then 
is to divide them into how, whether they have chronic idiopathic or chronic urticaria, or do they have acute urticaria. Very arbitrary distinction at six weeks cutoff. If, it's been if they've had urticaria for fewer than six weeks, we call them acute. Longer than six weeks, they're termed chronic. If they have acute urticaria, in most cases, it's going to resolve spontaneously. You don't need to do any lab workup. So if they haven't been having these hives for more than six weeks, don't do any further testing. Treat them with their antihistamines. Plan for follow-up if they're not getting better. It's the patients for whom these hives have been going on greater than six weeks that we want to start thinking about doing labs. And that paper we talked about in the last hour from the allergy journals helps us to, to be able to tell our patients with good confidence that we don't have to do an extensive lab workup. We can do a, an H&P and a review of systems to make sure there's no evidence of any unusual findings or symptoms. We can do a few really simple labs, a CBC, a BMP, consider maybe inflammatory markers. I will say I don't always do SED rates and C-reactive proteins in my patients, but you can think about those, and maybe a TSH. You can stop at that point. You do not have to do other, other tests, unless your H&P and your review of systems digs up some other suspicious finding that you need to evaluate further. All right, this 26-year-old lady has painful pink plaques and nodules on her legs that never photograph very well. Uh, your deep punch biopsy confirms that she has erythema nodosum, so what tests are you gonna do now? Nothing else at this first day, day of, of evaluation? Are you gonna send her for an LP, a lumbar puncture? Are you gonna check to see if she's had any strep infections currently or recently? Are you going to biopsy her? Well, you already did that. That really is a... D is the incorrect answer. <laughs> um, or are you going to do a tissue culture? So of your choices here, um, strep testing is, is the most appropriate. So erythema nodosum presents with these usually tender plaques and nodules, most often on the shins, but it can be elsewhere. Um, it's a paniculitis, so inflammation in the fat characterized by these painful nodules. You have to do deep biopsies because that's where the inflammation is, deep in the adipose. Um, and, and really in many, many cases you don't find a trigger, but it's a reaction to some inflammatory process elsewhere in the body. It's just that we don't always seem, uh, have the ability to figure out what that had been. Infections are the most common trigger of erythema nodosum. Um, so looking for sources of infection uh, is an important step in figuring out why this patient has this. And sometimes they'll be able to say, yeah, I just got over strep throat, um, and you don't need to do further testing. But thinking about infections, looking at their medication list, because drugs can cause erythema nodosum, um, birth control pills are one of the common triggers. And so um, you know, that's something that patients don't even always remember to tell us that they're taking, because they don't always think of it as, as uh, something in their medication list. But that can do it. Antibiotics, the TNF inhibitors. It can, erythema nodosum 
can occur in association with inflammatory disease processes like inflammatory bowel disease, so asking about a history of symptoms of IBD or a history, a known history. Rarely erythema nodosum can be a sign of an underlying malignancy, most often hematologic. We can see erythema nodosum in the setting of sarcoidosis. Pregnancy, like OCPs, so elevated estrogen states can trigger it, so pregnancy test in the right setting. Um, systemic vasculitides, like Bichette's. Sweets, although I think sometimes clinically these are actually mimickers of one another. So in terms of a screening lab panel to think about when you're looking at a patient with erythema nodosum, you want to look for hematologic malignancy and infection, which you can do with your SED rate and your CBC and your strep testing. A chest x-ray to help look for signs of sarcoidosis, again, lymphomas or pulmonary infections. Tuberculosis, one of the infections, again, that's commonly associated with erythema nodosum. Um, and so those are, the, those are the, the screening labs you want to do. Oops, I'll put them up there one more time. I won't. They're in your handout. <laughs> Um, all right, next question. This 57-year-old has generalized pruritus, but you don't find any primary lesions. All you're seeing are excoriations, and this has been going on for three months. Which of these conditions listed could be the explanation? Does he have thyroid disease? Does he have an underlying malignancy? Does he have a parasitic infection, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease? Could he have any of them, none of them? I don't think I've heard a repeat yet in the music. I'm, I'm really impressed. Great. All of the above, any of these can be explanations for chronic pruritus, systemic explanations for pruritus in the absence of a rash. Um, it can occur in the setting of thyroid disease. Chronic renal failure sort of depends on the stage of renal disease that the patient has. So early stage renal disease less likely to be associated with itch, but end stage renal disease much more likely to be associated with generalized pruritus. Um, liver disease, one of the main systemic organs involved that could be an explanation for pruritus. Hematologic disease, including malignancies, um, but also even iron deficiency can do this parasitic infestations, medications, of course, um, again, malignancy and infections. So what should our workup be for patients with chronic pruritus? A thorough history and physical, including information about travel. Could they have been exposed to some parasite that we don't see where we live? Um, new medications, a detailed review of systems, a head-to-toe skin exam, let's make sure there really isn't a rash somewhere that we aren't just seeing when the patient has, not, has chosen not to get into a gown but is complaining of itch all over. Um, biopsy anything where you're thinking maybe there's something going on. And again, we talked about this before, in the elderly, elderly patient with pruritus ongoing in the absence of a rash and you, everything else looks normal even with their labs, they're otherwise healthy, think about bullous pemphigoid and a biopsy with DIF. Um, a physical, and then these lab studies are a good starting point. A CBC with differential, again, you're looking for malignancy, you're looking at their liver and kidney health, their thyroid, you're looking for infections of the liver like hepatitis, HIV, 
You're going to look again with an SPEP, a serum protein electrophoresis for hematologic malignancy. Stool for ova and parasites. I don't know if I jump to this first unless there's a travel history or a GI, like diarrhea history to make me want to do this, um, but I have ordered it in patients where this first round of screening is negative and they still itch, and I have now a couple times found uh, ova and parasites when I didn't expect to. Um, and a chest x-ray, again, you're looking largely for evidence of lymphoma with that chest x-ray. And you want to order, and these, make sure these patients are up to date with their age-appropriate malignancy screening. So you don't necessarily have to treat these patients like your dermatomyositis patients where you are scanning them head to toe, but at least make sure they're up to date with age-appropriate screening. And with that, we'll do your evaluation and have time for some questions. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Uh, progressive macular hypomelanosis, I think, was covered in a different room. So I'm not going to, I'm going to skip that, but uh, I think that you might find the correct speaker for that. Um, how do you explain in lay terms to patients the difference between a yeast and a fungus? So yeast are fungi. So in terms of our animal kingdom plants, yeast are a type of fungus. But yeast, when we, what, we, what we were talking about is when you look under the microscope, um, a pathogenic yeast infection, usually you see spores and short hyphae, pseudo hyphae. Um, whereas a dermatophyte fungus looks different on a KOH where you get those long branching hyphae that course over the keratinocyte uh, cell membranes. Um, yeast can be normal flora. Dermatophyte fungi are never normal flora. Um, and so in an infection, yeast infection, we expect to see not just spores, but spores and hyphae on our KOH. Um, could you please explain the biopsy of mycobacterium? Do you do H&E or send the specimen in saline? So when you're doing a tissue culture looking for any type of, of infection, bacterial, fungal, or atypical mycobacterial, you can do your, procedurally it's the same thing. You do a punch biopsy just like you would do a punch biopsy for routine histology. Um, typically though, you're gonna send it in a sterile specimen cup with a little sterile um, saline on gauze. So the tissue doesn't dry out in the time it takes to get to the lab. So that just keeps it, keeps it moist and so it won't dry out. But you don't put it in formalin which could kill off any organisms you're hoping to subsequently grow in the lab. Um, but, you, but procedurally, it's the, it's the same thing. Um, 
For, and, and, you know, I should say it's, it's also reasonable when you're thinking about those infections, send the tissue for H&E because your, your fungal infections and your atypical mycobacterial infections take a long time to grow in the lab setting. So you won't get a result back sometimes for two, four, six, eight weeks. But your, your histology you'll get back within days and they, may, they will do special stains and they be, may be able to say, ooh, I'm seeing something that looks like atypical mycobacteria. Um, in which case, you might decide, I had a patient recently referred for erythema nodosum, and I biopsied her and sent tissue culture and got a report back saying, we think we're seeing some AFB in your biopsy. So before you go putting this person on prednisone, it might be better to wait until you get that culture re result back. And she, in fact, did have an atypical mycobacterial infection. And we ran out of time for the last question, but I will be here for the next two days, so come find me. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.